0: Welcome to Her skin, a podcast about the minority experience. I'm Abhi Chenaya. A year ago, I started a photography series called Light Skin, Dark Skin, following the stories of brown women and their experiences with colorism. Now, I'm taking things a step further. I'm having discussions about diversity, skin color, race, inclusivity, and everything in between. Sorry, I was just wondering what this, I mean, is it just going to be a podcast?
1: Is it, are you going to be like put it somewhere or it's just going to be your thing or what have you thought about it?
0: Well, I, as you know, I did light skin, dark skin. Yeah. the a photography series. Yeah. And it's just kind of widening the scope a little bit here and talking to people that I couldn't talk to otherwise or photograph yeah. because light skin, dark yeah. skin is very storytelling. Um, yeah. Heavy and photography. So, yeah, I just thought... It would be actually great to talk to some awesome women and the focus is obviously always on women of color and minorities for me and mm-hmm. bringing a platform to that because well we don't really have one I don't think so you mentioned that you are in Delhi at the moment how long have you been in Delhi for now well nine years have you been there the whole time no
1: no no so i When I left New Zealand, I went back to uh, Bangalore um, and then I was there for a couple of years and it's been about three and a half years since I've been in Delhi. So um, I was with Greenpeace while I was in New Zealand and I came back to India with Greenpeace. So I've always sort of had this activist sort of DNA in me. Um, I think after moving from uh, Greenpeace, I realized that I wanted to work with women uh, from marginalized communities, uh, in India. And I chose nutrition, um, as an issue. Yeah. So I decided post Greenpeace that I wanted to work with, um, marginalized women, um, in India. And I chose to focus on malnutrition because that was a huge issue amongst women and children who are living, um, you know, on the margins. And that's what I do today. I, um, I mean, I work with tribal communities in India, which are um, one of the most, or I could say the most marginalized communities. And I work with women um, in collectivizing them, building leadership amongst um, tribal women so that they can
0: demand their right uh, to nutrition. And how did that come about? How did this whole project happen?
1: Um, so, I mean, it was something that, uh, you know, I mean, there's no, I don't, I, I don't think there's too much of a uh, of a great story behind it. Uh, but I work with a development consultancy at the moment in um, Delhi. And um, I mean, I was working like any consultancy with a whole bunch of development projects. But I did feel that um, so it was something that I pitched to a funder because uh, I've been working like even with Greenpeace and while I was working with um, you know a funder in India, um, it this was an issue that I sort of learned about. It was not something I knew about immediately when I came back from New Zealand. So I was traveling across the country. I was meeting people. I was talking to them, uh, hearing their stories, their experiences, and then I realized that. You know, this is an area I want to work in because um, I also felt that while the, the community that was working on health and nutrition wasn't entirely focused and prioritizing the needs of these marginalized women, who we also, you know, the community is also called Adivasi in India. Um, So it's something that I sort of decided that I wanted to work in. I mean, the opportunity was right. Um, You know, I was lucky enough to get a pot of funding from a funder and I just converted my entire focus on tribal women and children. So I would say it's a journey that's taken over a decade to realize that this is what I want to do. And these are the communities I want to work in and a lot of it has been because of a whole bunch of people who i work with in india and their influence on the way i think um and you know what i sort of work on i mean there has been historical oppression to these communities not just tribal communities but they're also um dalit communities that you know uh in india uh and the reason is uh you're right because they they have been marginalized historically and that has uh, you know continue to happen till this day um i mean because they they they're almost invisible in in the sense their needs their demands their aspirations um, are invisible to the indian mainstream and it's also because they you know they don't make it to your newspapers um you know their stories don't um you know movies are not made about them uh we you know they're Festivals are not mainstream. Their culture is completely sidelined. So the common Indian woman or man, um, you know, doesn't think about them. So they, they've been made invisible and therefore it suits politicians as well as bureaucracy to just ignore them because uh, they don't see any political gain out of doing anything for this community. So you're and right.
0: And it's, sorry. Yeah. And this community you mentioned is based in Odisha.
1: Yeah, so they're based in one of, I mean, they're based across India, they're they're also in other states, but Orissa has uh, one of the highest tribal population in India.
0: How often do you get to travel out and be with them? Because how much does this project encompass? Do you go out and give them the supplies they need and education or, and, because you said nutrition has so many facets yeah. to it, right?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um. So I used to, pre-lockdown, I used to be there every 10 days. Um, So I had a team in Orissa who I worked with because obviously I don't speak the same language. Um, So I needed a team who was from within that that community and also people who belong to Orissa who were sort of supporting me in this project. Um, So I used to go there almost once in 10 days. And what we did is we sort of created, um, you can say a people's movement. Uh, that sort of collectivized um, tribal women, tribal men, as well as um, other marginalized women from other communities to become part of this sort of movement. So it took a lot of time with a lot of, you know, community level meetings. Uh, There were a lot of activities at the community. Um, You know, there was a a whole bunch of sensitization with service providers, sensitization with uh, village leaders, so it was an entire process of um, converting a community into becoming, into realizing their empowerment and their and finding their voice uh, and becoming this people's movement that then the administration or political leaders could not ignore. So that's the sort of work that I was doing, um, traveling every week, every 10 days to the state of Orissa, which by the way is in the east of India. And uh, of course, Post-lockdown, I've been, um, I mean, you know, post-corona, I've been at home stuck in Delhi and um, I try and communicate with my team as much as possible over Zoom, over other video conferencing. How have they been
0: faring with this whole coronavirus situation?
1: Yeah, so it's interesting you ask um, this question. And I think I'm, I'm, I can sort of, you know, I'm, I'm probably not just going to, speak about the tribal women um, who I work with but I think um, rural women in India uh, post the pandemic uh, you know in India and I'm sure there are trends like this across the world where um, you know the the age group as well as the the gender of people generally getting affected by the virus has been men Uh, but recently we um, you know what's coming to light is that women and children are actually the worst victim of this pandemic Uh, for, for simple reasons, the increase in gender-based violence at homes because of the lockdown, uh, the fact that essential health services in rural India have not been available, health as well as nutrition services, despite governments been trying, um, you know, it's been a situation where it's all hands on deck, uh, you know, towards the COVID duty. So all the other essential services that women and children require, especially in Uh, rural India have been getting ignored. Uh, But the worst thing that's coming that we're hearing about is the gender based violence and women becoming victims of this uh, sort of lockdown. And I think it goes down to the fact that India is a very, very patriarchal as well as a casteist society. So it is the marginalized, the women that sort of get the, um, you know, the worst end of Of this this deal. And there are anyways massive challenges with this pandemic in India. I don't know whether you've been reading, but there's been a whole bunch of, um, you know, issues with migrants, uh, migrants who have had to walk hundreds and hundreds of kilometers back to their villages uh, during this pandemic because they have had no support from the government. Of course, there's some sort of support pouring in now, but um, there were some horror stories that we were reading about in hearing about where labor force in this, uh, in India was forced to walk back to their villages because no, you know, no government would give them transport. They had no food. Um, so there's this, it's been a very, very challenging time, um, throughout this lockdown, I think across the board, but I would say women from marginalized communities have probably been the most, uh, impacted.
0: Also, because you mentioned prior to this conversation that, um, a lot of these women also get forced into marriage very early. Yes, yes. And that makes them more oppressed in a way, doesn't it? Because they are being forced into a future that they might not necessarily want and yeah. it's hard to get out of. What is life like for these women in the tribal communities
1: uh, this is a symptom or I would say a
0: byproduct of the
1: kind of you know the, the, the deep-rooted patriarchy that sort of exists in India that women at a very young age um, without they don't have a choice whether it's over their body um, whether it's over their sexual choices um, anything at all right they don't have it comes down to the fact that they they don't they're not given decision-making um, they don't have decision-making power because that's how the society unfortunately is structured. Therefore they get married to someone possibly who they didn't choose, um, possibly at an age that they, you know, wanted to study or get educated. Um, so if I'm not mistaken, the stats say that about, you know, 20 to 30% of Indian women today still get married under the age of 18. And in certain states, this is much worse. Um, and it, it could, you know, so go up to possibly, you know, even 40%, which is which is quite bad. Um, so what happens is, I guess the expectation is, yes, you, you know, you are married young, you have to serve the household, uh, you know, and uh, become a baby making factory if, you know, lack of finding better words to describe it. And that becomes another issue when women get pregnant really young, because there are more complications to their health, as well as the health of the child that is, that is born post that. So yeah, uh, Abhi, I possibly can't, you know, describe what they experienced because I'm not in their position, but you can just about imagine what it would be like to have no choice. And that's what it is, right? Having no choice over anything in your life. Uh, and that's what it's possibly like.
0: Yeah, that would be really, really hard. And as yeah. you said, you know, I myself can't speak for that because I have had a very privileged upbringing in life. and yeah and it's so great to see that people like you are out there and helping these women and these communities and bringing them the funding and the attention and the help that they need and deserve and it's important that we have people like you out there doing this kind of work thanks Abby. so are you still are you guys still in a lockdown
1: Um, So it's a partial lockdown where I mean things are um, you know sort of open but they're not open but a lot of people at least in Delhi are not stepping out because there's still a lot of fear and anxiety.
0: Because in New Zealand I think you would you may know that we had levels of a lockdown and we're in level one now. Did you you guys have the same or how was it? I think New
1: Zealand is way ahead of possibly any other country um, in the world today. India is, is not even close to that for a whole bunch of reasons. Um, We are in something called unlock one or something like that, but um, people are back to work. There are some offices that are open. Um, I think a lot of the major essential sectors um, have been opened up because, you know, the economy is doing so bad and, um, that the government has decided to open a lot of sectors. But people like myself who can do work from home, um, a lot of uh, companies are encouraging their um, you know, their employees to actually work from home, those who can.
0: Right, okay. Well, that's good then that there's some yeah. level of flexibility there with certain jobs. Yeah. Because I did wonder how, because the, the poverty levels in India and people who don't have office jobs or desk jobs or jobs that they can do at home, how are they surviving? Have they been, Has there been funding and anything to help them?
1: Ah, uh, So this is, yeah, I mean, um, this is such, <laughs> there's so much to answer for this question because um, I think the ones that uh, have been, who have been dependent on labor and as I was mentioning earlier, have sort of migrated from their villages to come into cities, um, to, you know, look for work, have actually been the ones that have been most impacted. Um, And, you know, with the lockdown, uh, there, you know, there have been wage cuts, there have been people who've lost their jobs. So the migrants have actually been one of the most um, affected communities in India. But I also know of, um, you know, urban middle class, young Indians who have lost their jobs who are possibly working in restaurants, who are working in salons. Um, so there's been huge job cuts and um, a lot of wage cuts across the board uh, for men and women. And I think the we would sort of see the impact of this in the next coming months. So my fear is that for India, in terms of our economy and what the impact has been on people, we're going to see this much more in the next coming months. Because right now we're just hearing of You know, the few stories of people who've been impacted, we just know of the migrants who've been badly affected. Uh, I think over the course of the next few months, more and more figures will come out of the number of people who've lost jobs, the the kind of wage cuts that have happened, and what our economy is actually looking like. But at the moment, it's not a pretty picture.
0: Is the virus under control in India at the moment?
1: (laughs) Not really, no. Uh, Our numbers are only increasing. Uh, I'm in Delhi and uh, I think we've crossed, I shouldn't be quoting numbers because I'm not very, very sure. Uh, But I do know that um, a few days back, India had crossed like five lakh cases. Uh, So we, we, we are like, yeah i don't think it's under control as much as everyone's you know putting an effort to do that um uh, i don't think it's under control because the cases are only increasing and in a city like delhi uh, i'm hearing horror stories from my neighbors um about you know not having you know uh, the the hospitals are not testing people uh, there are no beds in hospitals because you also know that india is is a very very populated country Uh, And I don't think we have the right kind of health infrastructure, which was already known to deal with a pandemic uh, like COVID, so.
0: Wow, while I was stalking you on LinkedIn, I saw (laughs) that you are doing your masters, was it, in leadership? I'm
1: doing an executive program while I'm working um, on public leadership.
0: That's awesome. And I read the essay that you wrote, and there was a part of it that really stood out to me. And it, you said, I dwelled in this feeling. It made me realize that one doesn't need to be in a certain position of power to be a leader. Most leaders I admire that have led change do not necessarily come from notional or positional power, but rather from power that is derived from their people or their constituency. These leaders practice organizing and follow the principles of defining their constituency specific to their people and using resources at hand to solve these challenges. So I wanted to ask you then, how do you define leadership? Right. so I,
1: I think leadership is when you um, when you're able you're able to enable um, action during uncertainty, um, to me, that's leadership, when you're able to motivate and um inspire people to act and to make change um that's leadership and as um you know i had written in the essay you were quoting um that leadership is not necessarily if you are a prime minister or a president or if you happen to be a ceo Uh, i think leadership is derived from uh, your ability to sort of bring people together and um, inspire those people to act and uh, I don't think you you know you need a position uh, in order to do that so um, and this this leadership and the the way I look at leadership today is of course evolving Um, but of course you know but I, I felt more and I felt this particular thing to be very very true uh, especially when with my work with um, you know some of the tribal women on the ground uh, and i've started to believe that the only way to sort of make change right and to and for these people for change to happen in the lives of some of these communities who are invisible um, in the eyes of the mainstream is to have leaders to be born out of those communities. I think that is the only, um, only way there is, there is going to be actual change. Um, and so for me, leadership is, is a very, very, my definition of who a leader is, what a leader is, has completely changed over these years. Um, so yeah, I mean, that's, that's sort of a few of my thoughts. I I think um, this pandemic has been um, an eye-opener for many, many reasons. Um, I don't think we've had very good global uh, leadership throughout this pandemic, um, whether it's from the US, whether it's from Brazil, um, whether it's from the UK or its countries like India and China. Um, And this is, of course, my own personal view um, that there I mean, the pandemic has possibly been one of the most uncertain times of, uh, at least I have seen in my lifetime, uh, for me personally, and I, you know, real leadership for me comes out during these times of uncertainty, and how well you're able to collaborate and how well you're able to take people along. And I've seen that um, complete failure, um, you know, at least the way I view things, um, a complete failure across the gro- globe. And what's come out is actually women leaders from across the world. And there's been a lot of stories around that, whether it's New Zealand, whether I think it's um, Germany as well, and a couple of other places where women have come out to be quite powerful leaders during this uncertain time. So that's that's pretty telling. Uh, and I think it also, um, for me, it comes down to the fact that yeah, you know, this kind of brings me to even the point that, uh, which is also very personal to me, that women are, um, you know, not. Mm, I would say. Women are stopped, or they're not allowed to rise to these positions because of, um, you know, a lot of insecurities um, in the society, and because we live in a male-dominated society. We live in in um, in society where the the rules have not been defined by all genders equally. They've only been defined by men throughout history and even today. So you don't see too many women leaders, and when you see a good woman leader rise, you always see you. You know, whether it's in the workplace or whether it's at a political public level, that they are always sort of, um, you know, they're either they're labeled and they're put into boxes um, that, you know, she's too aggressive, she's too mild or she doesn't have the capacity. So these are the kind of things that I've, um, you know, at least I've experienced in, in, in working environments in India. And I'm sure that a lot of people all over the world can relate to it. Um, So sorry, I just sort of got into this conversation because you brought up leadership. And then I, you know, I thought of the whole, um, you know, New Zealand and then the whole women leadership angle.
0: No, that's exactly why I wanted to talk to you to hear your perspectives on things. So when were you living in New Zealand? How long were you living in New Zealand for?
1: Um, I was there for five years. I think I came to New Zealand when I was 21 to do my master's in marine science. Um, And yeah, I was there for about five years. Uh, Yeah, so that was, yeah, five years. That's right.
0: How did you find coming into New Zealand as a migrant?
1: Huh, okay so um this is an interesting question so I mean I'm just gonna you know I, I think for me coming to New Zealand was one of the best things that I could have done for myself uh because you know i so in India you know I'm just gonna talk a little bit about my background uh before getting into that so it kind of makes sense um growing up in India I mean I had an amazing child I have no, I have no complaints. I had amazing parents who brought me up to be a really strong, powerful, self thinking woman, and I'm really grateful to them for doing that. Um, but when you step out of your home and there are other people you interact with in India, you know, you know, your society, your extended family, um, you're always sort of, this thought is ingrained into your head, right? That, um, you have to be a certain way as a woman, uh, that, you know, you, um, Maybe you don't need to study so much or maybe you don't have to think about your career so much because roles for women in our society are defined. Um, You know, I always used to think twice about um, stepping out on the street uh, because, you know, a lot of our cities are unsafe for women actually, I would say most. Uh, so there were always and there were things I kept questioning, I I kept questioning, I kept questioning everything. Whenever someone told me I couldn't do something because I, or I was a woman, I always questioned it. And I think that ability to do that came, of course, from the values that my parents ingrained in me. And my parents always encouraged me to actually question everything. So I questioned, 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 which also made me a bit of a troublemaker back home. Because I, I used to, I always had this feeling that, I mean, there's something wrong in this narrative, there's something wrong about being told that I'm not the same as any other boy that you know I grew up with I just couldn't understand that right I did understand that I was biologically different but I didn't think that that was a reason I couldn't be an equal or I couldn't be better so when I came to New Zealand um, for me I'm first going to touch upon the gender part because I would say that it was such a liberating experience of course from the uh, other than the fact that, you know, I was able to sort of walk on the street whenever I wanted, Um, you know, I didn't have men hooting at me or staring at me, or sort of, you know, pinching my butt. Um, So it was a very, very empowering experience. And I gained strength my five years in New Zealand, because of the people I met because of the kind of place I worked in, which was Greenpeace. I gained a lot of strength and I kind of was vindicated by the fact that, okay, you know what? My questioning back home was for a reason because clearly these guys were wrong because things are done differently here. And of course, I'm not saying that there are no uh, abuses of women's rights in New Zealand. There, I'm sure there are. But this is just my own personal experience as an Indian girl coming into a new country like New Zealand. And then I saw women... Um, In fact, having an equal voice to men um, at the workplace, you know, uh, in other settings, and I was amazed. Women were talking about everything and anything, and in fact, being... You know, sort of more uh, bossy, than men were in New Zealand, and I found that amazing because that was very, very rare to see in India, where uh, you know, like discussions about politics would only be about you know, uh, would be a space that only men would participate in, and women would talk about fashion and things like that. Uh, so these roles are defined in India, and I kind of saw those roles just crashing down in New Zealand, and it was amazing for the for the rebellion me because I was like, yes, I knew I was always right. So for me, as I told you, it was an amazing experience. Those five years were, were amazing. And, uh, I'm sure that, you know, there is racism, even in New Zealand, Uh, if you are a woman of color, or if you're a man of color, I'm sure you, you know, people experience racism. But I think I was in such a, um, such a happy place because of just finding my freedom and my, and finding a stronger voice that maybe I didn't see the, um, you know, I didn't see the signs or I didn't see the, you know, the kind of, maybe the, uh, the racist signals that I didn't, I didn't notice them. Um, though I'm I'm saying I'm sure they they probably existed, but I didn't experience them. In fact, um, I was a door-to-door fundraiser uh, in uh, at Greenpeace. That was my first job. I used to go to different neighborhoods, white neighborhoods, colored neighborhoods, uh, you know, mixed neighborhoods and knock on doors and ask people for money from Greenpeace. And there was never a moment that I actually felt that someone was discriminating um, against me because I was a woman or because I was a woman of color. So my experience in New Zealand has been amazing and um, it's something that I cherish till today. And I feel that the woman I am today has a lot to do um, because I spent quite of my my youth, uh, I spent a good
0: amount of my youth um, in New Zealand. I love how you mentioned more gender equality in New Zealand and I so agree with you on that. And it is something that I... Every day that I have lived here, enjoy that women do have a voice. There is still a lot of work to do about gender equality in New Zealand and all over the world. But I think that as a woman and now as a woman who works in a corporate setting, I do have a voice and people do listen. It is inclusive. Well, Neha, we have come to the end of our chat this has been amazing oh i'm glad abby <laughs> thank you so much for talking to me today